Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to Easter Sunday, the most important day of the year for us as Christians. So today, we're going to talk about why it is the most important day of the year. Why is it that this is such a significant day? If you're already a Christian, I hope that this will encourage you, it will remind you of what God has done for us in Christ. If you're not a Christian, then I hope this explains something about why Christians make such a big deal. You see that Easter, Easter is the answer to a couple different problems, a problem that God has and a problem that we have. And God's problem is that he is 100% just. He is completely and perfectly just. And he is also 100% merciful. He is completely and perfectly, wholly, totally merciful. And as you can imagine, those two things can conflict. I mean, they certainly do for us. You know, imagine if you're a parent, think of a time. I've got more than one child. So one of my children comes up to the other one, imagine, and knocks him down and takes his toy. Okay, so what do I do as, as their dad? Well, obviously, I step in, I tell the one that's pushed his sibling down, hey, you can't do that, here's why, don't act that way. I take the toy away, I give it back to his brother or his sister, whoever he took it from. But now what do I do? On the one hand, do I punish him for doing this? Because if I don't, then really it's his sibling that suffers. Because when this started, they had the toy, and now when it ends they have the toy, but nothing's happened to the one that did something wrong. If I'm going to be just, I really need to punish him for this, but I don't want to punish him. I love him. I'm I'm merciful. I don't want to cause him pain. For us, justice and mercy, you know, they conflict with each other. And I can't imagine a situation where someone harms me and I don't want justice. And yet, when I harm someone else, what I want is mercy. And we so often see those things in opposition. God is completely, perfectly just, but he's completely, perfectly merciful. And those two things can be in opposition to one another. Because God is completely just, then he never lets anything slide. He can never say, oh, that's fine, don't worry about it. You know, he can never do what I could do to my children. One of them pushes him down, I say, oh, give the toy back, apologize to him. And then we're done. Right? I can just say, hey, there's not going to be justice. I can not be just. God can never do that. He can never not be just. He is just. He's 100% completely, perfectly just. He is going to see that there is justice for everything. And I don't just mean for the big things. Like, yeah, we're good for justice, like thieving, murder, rape, these horrible crimes. But the little ones... Yeah, we're fine to let those go, especially when it's us, aren't we? The things we call white lies, the times when I'm selfish, but it's just not that big a deal. Who am I hurting anyway? If I know I should do something good, but I don't, is that really that big a deal? It is for God. It is very much so for God because he's just. He's perfectly just, but he's also perfectly merciful. He doesn't want to punish, just like me as a dad. He doesn't 
want to punish his children. God has a problem with these two aspects of his nature, justice that demands that there be punishment for what's wrong and mercy that insists that there not be. How is God going to solve this problem and still be true to himself? He can't be 100% just and 90% merciful. He can't be 100% merciful and 90% just. What? What is he going to do? That's God's problem. Then we also have a problem. You know, all those things we do, which aren't what God wants, again, the big things like murder and kidnapping and stealing, and all the little things like selfishness and laziness and knowing I should do something but not doing it and knowing I shouldn't do something, but nobody's going to care and what the heck, and I, I do it anyway. All those things the Bible calls sin. It's us going our own way. God made a perfect world. He put us in it. But to live in that perfect world, we had to obey his rules, and we didn't want to. So we got our world, which, as you can tell, is definitely not perfect. We can't live in God's world unless we're willing to obey God's rules. We wouldn't do that. So now we live in our world where we don't have to obey his rules. But that that sin, all those things in us where the Bible says we go our own way, that separated us from God. And ultimately... We're all going to die. When God made the world, there was no death. We did that. When we chose not to live in his world, but to live in ours, we'll do it our way. Thank you very much. I appreciate your advice, but I'll decide. Then what happened, the Bible says, is death came. Sin, scripture says, leads to death. The wages of sin is death. The power of sin, the Bible says, is death. We are all going to die. We are separated from God on this earth right now, but eventually we're going to die and be eternally separated from him. God has a problem in his nature of mercy and justice, and we have a problem that we're separated from God, and one day we'll die and we'll forever be separated from God. Easter is the solution to that problem. So we're going to walk through the Easter story, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to look at what happened right before, and we're going to look at what happens right after. So turn in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 26. This story takes place the day before Jesus is crucified. Jesus will be crucified on Friday late in the morning, and he'll die that afternoon. But we're going to look at what happened the night before. This is late Thursday night. So look at Matthew chapter 26 and read along with me, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping again because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he turned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
So this is, again, maybe you know, 12 hours or so before Jesus is going to be crucified. And he goes alone with a few of his disciples to pray. And do you hear the words that used, it's used of him? He's sorrowful. He's troubled. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. I, I don't know if sorrow and trouble are strong words in, in your vocabulary, but for Matthew, in the language he's writing in, they're very strong words. We've never applied these words to Jesus before. We have seen Jesus praised and held up as the king and everyone saying how great he is. And we've seen him reviled, spat upon. We've seen people wanting to stone him. He's never been like this. The the idea in English is just to be in anguish, just terrible, terrible anguish. And notice what it says when he goes to pray. It says he falls on the ground on his face. We've seen him pray lots of times. He's never prayed like that. What's going on? And the answer is in verse 39, where he says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. You see, the cup is an image in the Old Testament of God's wrath. That whole part about God is perfectly just, completely perfectly just, where that justice eventually goes is God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath. Let me read you some passages. This one is from Jeremiah chapter 25. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup and the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. This is from Habakkuk chapter two. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. This is from Psalm 75. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of it. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down to its dregs. Do you hear that? That the cup is an image for God's wrath, God's punishment, his righteous judgment on everything that is wrong. It's an image of his justice poured out and It's bad. You heard those descriptions of what it's going to be like. Shame and dishonor, death, the sword, drinking it down to the dregs. And Jesus is just beginning to taste this. You know, up until now, Jesus knows he's going to die. He's talked to his disciples about it, but it's very matter of fact. The Son of Man will be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll scourge him, beat him, mock him, kill him, but on the third day, he'll rise again. He's just listed it out. Now, here, finally, he's just beginning to understand what it means that he is going to die. He's not just gonna die. Lots of people in history have died and died well. They've died facing terrible circumstances and they've died with nobility. They have died in ways that people are really impressed with. Jesus isn't just going to die. He's going to drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath. And he is beginning to understand what that means. Have you ever had an experience where, you know, you go through it and then afterwards you're like, oh, if I had only known, I would have never done that. Jesus isn't going to get that. Jesus isn't going to go through with the crucifixion and then at the other end at the resurrection say, oh, if I'd known what was going to happen, I never would have said yes to that. Jesus knows. He knows now he is in anguish 
because he's seeing the cup. He's seeing what's coming for him. He's seeing what it's going to mean. He's not just going to die. He's going to die, and he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs. Why? It's because of what he says to God. He prays, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. Either Jesus drinks the cup or we drink the cup because God's justice demands that someone drink the cup. The only way for that cup to go away is to be drunk. Either Jesus drinks it or we drink it. And think about it. Jesus now knows what's going to happen. He's feeling it. He's sensing it. It's not just a, oh yeah, the Son of Man will be handed over and died. He understands what's going to happen. It's dark and he's alone. His friends are asleep. His friends have metaphorically deserted him. He asked them to come and pray and watch with him. They don't. They're, they've fallen asleep. They're going to physically, literally desert him very shortly. He knows what's going to happen and he knows he's going to go through it alone. He knows what it means that the cup is coming for him. It's dark. It's late. He's all alone. He can walk away. No one will know. There's no one there. He can just start walking in the dark, but he doesn't. He stays and he prays and he keeps praying the same thing. Lord, I don't want this, but if this is your will, then I'll do it. He knows what's coming and he stays So right after the story, Jesus is arrested. He's put on trial before the Jewish leaders. They find him guilty of blasphemy. He's the son of God. He's claiming to be Jehovah, the God of the universe. He's claiming divinity. That's a capital offense for them, but they can't execute him. It's not a capital offense for the Romans who run the country. So they take him to the Roman governor Pilate. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, and they accuse him of sedition. They say, hey, he's calling himself the king of the Jews. He wants to replace Herod, the Roman-appointed king, with himself. He wants to rebel and take over. And we talked about how the Roman governor Pilate knows none of that is true. He knows Jesus is not a threat, but eventually he just gets tired of fighting him and he gives in and he signs the execution order and he sends Jesus off. So we're going to pick up the story in the next chapter. In Matthew chapter 27, after Pilate has signed the execution order and he's handed him over to the soldiers. So pick up with me, if you will, in verse 33. So they, that's the soldiers leading Jesus, came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come now down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants to. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. 
Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So walk through the story with me. They take Jesus to crucify him. Before they crucify him, before they put the nails and and nail him to to the crossbeam and put it up, they offer him wine mixed with gall. This would numb him. It would make him a little loopy. He wouldn't feel things nearly as much. And he won't take it because he's not allowed to drink the cup of God's wrath with gall in him to stop him from feeling it. He has to know fully what's going on. And so he refuses it and they crucify him. And do you notice, like remember we talked about if you were here for um, the, the Christmas celebration, that the actual birth of Jesus is only like one verse. And here it is again. How do they crucify Jesus? Verse 35, when they had crucified him, they did these other things. The writers aren't as concerned. You know, we'd make it a big deal if it was a movie. We'd have this whole big long scene where he's crucified. That's not the issue for the writers of the New Testament. What matters is what happened before and what's going to happen after. Do you notice the people crying out to him? In verse 42, they say, oh, he's saved others. Let him save himself. Except he can't. That's the one thing he can't do. He can either save others, us, or he can save himself. He can't do both. He can drink the cup so we don't have to. Or he cannot drink the cup and then We will drink it as justice demands. He can't save us and save himself. They cry out to him in verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God save him. But again, that's the one thing God can't do. If God saves Jesus, then he can't save us. It has to be one or the other. And so Jesus hangs there. And then do you notice what he cries out at the end in verse 46? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? This is the only time that Jesus ever addresses God as God. All the rest of the time, he calls him Father. This one time, he calls him the way we call him. God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because God has. That's the dregs of the cup of God's wrath. We are separated from God because of our sin. And ultimately, we will die and we will be forever separated. God will abandon us. We didn't want to live in his world under his rules, so we live in our world under ours. And then eventually, because we don't want to be where God is, we will go to the only place in the universe where there is nothing, no even tiny remnant of God. We call it hell That's what the creed tells us. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He descended into hell. Jesus is drinking to the dregs the cup of God's wrath, and this is the bottom of it. He is abandoned by God. He is consigned to the only place in the universe where there is nothing of God. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because he's drinking the cup for us. 
And then do you notice what happens after this? Again, the writers are so much more concerned with the consequences of these things than with describing the actual action. What happens when Jesus dies? He dies in verse 50. In verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple separates the part of the temple that's called the most holy place from the rest of the temple. You can go into the rest of the temple, but you can't go into the most holy place because God is there. That's where God's presence comes. It comes originally from Moses, 1,500 years before this, when he built the tabernacle, a giant tent in itself. But then at one end, there was another curtain, and God would come behind the curtain because of our sin, because of what we've done with God. God can't come sit with us face to face. So it says Moses would sit on one side of the curtain and he would talk to God and God would talk back from the other side. And the Bible doesn't say it, but other sources tell us this curtain is about 18 inches thick. And then it's as wide as it needs to be to to cover off that part of the temple. And one guy, the high priest, could go behind that curtain into that holy of holies, that one room, once a year on the day of atonement with blood. And if you know the story, you probably know they would tie a rope around him because It's the day of atonement, and if God doesn't accept the the sacrifice for the priest's sins, then he'll die. And you don't want to go in there and have to get him, or you'll die. So they're going to pull him out if anything happens. That curtain that represents that God and man can't be face to face. We can't see him. He can't come into our presence. We die That curtain rips, Matthew says, from top to bottom. It's like two giant hands take hold of an 18-inch-wide curtain and go, and just rip it right from the top to the bottom because God doesn't have to be separate from us anymore. The cup of God's wrath, what would happen to us if God came around us? It's done. Jesus has taken care of it. That curtain rips open. And now God doesn't have that problem anymore between his justice and his mercy. His justice is satisfied. So his mercy can be satisfied. That curtain rips open. It's a symbol that God can now dwell with men again. Look at the next thing in verse 52. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. People who have died are coming back to life, but you don't know it yet. You don't know it until after the resurrection of Christ. But remember, God has this problem that's now been solved by the death of Jesus, but we have this problem as well, which is we're going to die. And here, people aren't staying dead. And then the third thing that happens in the next verse in 54, the Romans look at Jesus' death and they say, surely He was the son of God. And remember, I've told you that son of God for the Jews, that's divinity. You're claiming to be Jehovah. But for the Romans, son of God is Caesar. Tiberius, Caesar, the son of God. The Romans, the Gentiles, the non-Jews look to Jesus. And it says above his dead body, the king of the Jews. And the Romans say, this is the king of everything. This is the king of the whole world. It's not just Jews now who talk about him like the the beggars we talked about last week. It's not just Jews calling him the son of God. Gentiles are calling him the son of God as well. 
So they take Jesus' body off the cross. They put him in a tomb. They seal him up. This is Friday evening because Saturday's the Passover and the Sabbath. You can't do any work then. So finally, Sunday morning, now people can come. The body's just been put into the tomb. It hasn't been prepared yet. So women come Sunday morning to prepare Jesus' body, to embalm it so that it can stay in the tomb. So let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 28, this Sunday morning, Easter, what we're celebrating. We'll we'll read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll pick back up in verse 16. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pick up in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Remember, we had a problem with death because we wouldn't live under God's rules. We live under our world. We're separated from God. And one day we're going to die and be forever separated from God. Only now Jesus has defeated death. Jesus was died. He was consigned to abandonment away from God. And yet he has emerged. He has come back from the dead. And notice, he's not just a ghost. In verse 9, the the women grab him. In their world, they think you could see a dead person, but you couldn't touch him. Jesus has a body. He's really risen from the dead. I want you to read you what the writer of Hebrews says about this. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who for all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death, Jesus dies, he descends to hell, and he defeats Satan. He defeats death itself. This is what Jesus will say about himself in the book of Revelation. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. We had a problem. We were going to die, and we were going to be separated from God forever. But now Jesus is in charge of death. Jesus didn't stay dead. And neither will we. That problem God had, that is satisfied by the death of Christ when he drinks the cup of God's wrath. God can now be with us, but we're still going to die. That's the consequence of our breaking away from God and going our own way. So Jesus defeats death itself. He comes back to life. The first from among the dead, we're told, but not the last. We won't stay dead either. Those of us who believe, those of us who follow, because of course the question is, what are you going to do with this? Do you believe it? 
Do you think these things are true? If you believe Jesus died for you and then rose from the dead, that he didn't stay dead and neither will you, then you're his. If you've never said that to him, wow, today's a great day, Easter 2021, to say that to him, to, to say, I believe. If it's never made sense before, but now it does, then praise God, that's his spirit talking to you. All you need to do is tell him, Jesus, I believe. I believe you died to save me. I believe you died to drink that cup so I wouldn't have to. I believe you have risen from the dead, so I won't stay dead either. I will live forever with you. If you tell that to the Lord, he can hear you. If you say that to him, then you're his. He will gladly make you his. He will give you his spirit until that day when we are face to face. God's spirit dwells in his people to teach us and guide us. If you've never done that before, then today is a great day to do that. To, to tell Jesus, yes, I believe. If you do that today, tell us. We would love to rejoice with you. Uh, call us, come to church next Sunday and tell us. Email us. You can email info at dumbwoodychurch.org. Tell us that, that you, you believe. You've told Jesus that you believe these things. We would love to celebrate with you. We'd love to help you get started in this journey with Christ. Because if you have said that, if you do believe it, whether it was last week or last year or a lifetime ago for you, then we still have Jesus' final words. He didn't just say, hey, great, you know, I've dealt with this, I've dealt with this, you're good. He said, go, go and make disciples. That's what we are called to do. All of us who believe this, who know this is true, we know Jesus died for us and he rose for us. We are called to go tell others to go make disciples. You know what we always talk about, the two wings of the plane, this wing, the baptizing them, the, the evangelism, the telling people about Jesus so they can believe too. And then this wing, the, the training, the growing, the becoming more and more like him. That's discipleship, those two wings. And Jesus says he wants all his disciples to be involved with that. So if you do believe this, are you doing it? Because if you're not, then Easter 2021 is a great day to start again. You know, we talked about this months ago, right? From Colossians, pray, serve, speak. Who are you praying for? Who are the non-believers that you are praying for? Are you still praying for them? Who are the people you're looking for chances to serve so that you can speak, so you earn the right to speak, to tell them the truth about what Jesus has done? And are you growing? You know, that's this wing, are you growing? Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you helping other people become more like Christ? Are you in a small group or a discipleship group? Are you meeting with people? Are you encouraging folks? That's what God calls us to. Once we believe, that's just the beginning. Then we need to go on and make disciples. So happy Easter 2021. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. And we say that every week, and we say that most of all this week. Thank you. You didn't have to do this. You could have walked away. When you tasted this cup in the garden, there was no one there. You could have just walked away. You could have done exactly what they said. You could have come down from the cross. You could have saved yourself. Your father could have saved you. But if you had done any of those things, then you wouldn't save us. We would drink the cup of God's wrath ourselves. We would die and be separated from him forever. Thank you. Thank you that you didn't walk away. Thank you that you didn't come down. Thank you that 
your father abandoned you so he will never have to abandon us. We are so grateful, Lord. Help us to respond in obedience to your call to go and make disciples, to go and speak about you to people, to to witness, to tell folks these truths, and then to grow, to become more like you, to become more like you ourselves and to help others become more like you. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to, to live out what we believe in obedience. For you are our God, and we are your grateful, grateful people. And so, Jesus, we pray in your name. We always pray in your name. We love you, and we are yours. Amen.